from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Career Talk on Business Radio. Here is your host, Dr. Don Graham. Welcome to Career Talk, your career insider. We are on Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School, Series XM, Channel 111. Hey, if it's Thursday, noon Eastern time, we are live and taking your calls all hour long, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. My name is Don Graham, and I am the Career Director for the Wharton MBA Program for Executives here in sunny Philadelphia. I'm also a licensed psychologist and former corporate recruiter. We're here with the Dream Team, Michelle and Dion who are taking your calls all hour long here on Career Talk, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So the phone lines are open. So I read a lot of career advice blogs and articles, and um, one name that keeps coming up over and over and over with stellar tips and insights is Carla Harris, and we're so excited to have her on the show today. Carla is actually managing director at Morgan Stanley, where she joined in 1987 after completing her MBA from Harvard. In 2013, Carla was appointed by President Obama to chair the National Women's Business Council. She is also a gospel recording artist with three albums and five sold-out performances at Carnegie Hall. A very popular public speaker in the corporate realm, Carla has written two books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, and we're very excited to have her here on Career Talk today. Welcome to the show, Carla. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Graham. I appreciate being here. So, Carla, I think you might be our first guest who has performed at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> well, that's good. So, that's good. yeah. So, tell us how you manage that. So, you've got this this very diverse brand. You're you're obviously a high powered executive. You've got the the you know your singing career, family. How do you juggle all of this? Yeah, I'll tell you, I am maniacal about my calendar. And <laughs> I am uh, very efficient, and I try to use every to- every hour that I can. And I, uh, one of the tricks that I use is that I put together my to-do list the night before I leave my office. So when I come in the next morning, I ask myself one question, what does success look like today? And I, then I prioritize, and I move forward to execute. And I make good use of the uh, time that may look like idle time. For example, when you're traveling on a two-hour flight, you can plan and say, what can I get done in this two hours? Or in my case, if I'm going West Coast and I have six hours, that's that's prime time to create and also to write. So both of my books were substantially written on uh, plane rides. On airplanes. So <laughs> so your frequent flyer miles turn into a book. So it's really about maximizing your time. And Absolutely. It's, it's funny you say you're maniacal about your calendar because in the days before cell phones, when we actually used to write on paper calendars, and then you, you, I was asked the question, if there was a fire, what, what is the first thing you'd grab in your home besides obviously your, your loved ones? And you know, I was like, well, of course my calendar. Because- That's exactly right. <laughs> and I still use the paper, actually. I find the phone is helpful, but uh, there is something for me that's magical about seeing it on a piece of paper. That, and I certainly uh, I get, I get my, my benefit, if you will, by checking things off of the list. And on a phone, you you basically have to delete it. And it doesn't give you that feeling of of completion, and it doesn't give you that feeling that you've actually done a lot. Whereas if you have a list of 20 things to do on a sheet of paper and you are methodically scratching each one off, then it gives you a very, very strong feeling of accomplishment. I'm very much like you on that. If, if I've done something and it wasn't on my list, I literally go write it on my list, Carla, just for the satisfaction of Absolutely. crossing That's it right. That's, and and that, is, that is correct because things come up during the day. So even though I've made this, this well-planned list the night before, things do happen in the day. And when those interruptions happen, you should write them on the list because as you turn your attention to prosecuting those things, they count. So at the end of the day, you can look and say, well, what did I do with my day? I've been here for eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. What did I do? You can look at that list and see exactly how you used your day. And you know, on the other side, if you haven't scratched anything off, then you know, note to self, I wasted a lot of time today. Let me make sure I don't do that tomorrow. 
Mm-hmm. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are here with Carla Harris, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley. If you've not heard her name yet, boy, you will, because Carla is everywhere. Carla, you've got the 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 advice of, I think, the, the decade in your books with expect to win and strategize to win. I mean, every page has something, a nugget that you can take away. But one of the things you said just a few moments ago is that every day you wake up and you ask yourself a question. Tell us that question again. Yes. What does success look like today? Because frankly, Don, success on Thursday is very different than success on Monday. And each day you have an opportunity to define that for yourself. Uh, And it's important that you do that. A, it reminds you that you are in power. uh, And B, uh, it gives you an opportunity to really think about what that thing is and so that you can then connect, reconnect to that at the end of the day and, again, have that feeling of accomplishment. So do you have an answer for that every single day? Or are there days when you struggle and say, I I have no idea what today's going to look like? Oh, no. I have have an answer every day. And that's the beauty of writing your to-do list the night before, because you have an opportunity at the end of your day, even though you're tired, you think about what transpired that day, what got added to the list but maybe didn't get done, what needs to get done because now you've, you've moved another day on the calendar, uh, and you get a chance to write it all down again. And then the, that morning when you're fresh, you can sit there and say, what does success look like today? You look at that list and you realize what is the most important thing that I have to get done today or what is the thing that's going to make me feel really good if I get that done today or lastly, what's the thing that I really don't want to do and if I just get it done, put it at the top of this list, focus right now on getting it done, I'll be happy that I got it done because I really didn't want to do it, but now it's out of the way. You have an opportunity to own all of that, which is part of the thing that will empower you throughout the day. So I imagine in order for you to be successful getting to those items on your to-do list, you have to do something that's that's very difficult for many of us, which is to say no. (laughs) (laughs) What is your advice for for saying no, especially to to those of us who are yes people and want to try and, and please everybody? Yes. Well, it's important that if you have if you have prioritized what's important to you and something else comes in, then it's a matter of having the discipline to say, um, A, can I do that? Do I want to do that? Is, is it important for me to do that? And if the answer to two out of those three things is no, then the answer is no. As much as you might not want to tell that person no, the answer is no. And the way that you can get yourself comfortable with the fact that no is a complete sentence is to remind yourself that sometimes if you take on that one marginal thing, that will compromise your execution on the other things that are important on the list. And if you're somebody like me, and I suspect like you, Don, where you don't want to ever compromise your execution or your excellence, that'll be the thing that will give you the power to say no because you don't want to compromise your execution. Hey, we're here with Carla Harris, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley, and you're listening to Career Talk, Series XM Channel 111. We are taking your calls all hour long, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So if you want a tip from the woman who is doing it all and doing it successfully, give us a call right now, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, so Carla, on that point, you know, I think that kind of speaks to the something you talk about in your book which is sort of performance currency and relationship relationship currency because as you're thinking about saying no, you're trying to balance task and relationship and, and both of those are important. So can you speak a little bit to what you mean about performance currency and relationship currency in the workplace? Absolutely. Uh, performance currency is the currency that is generated by your delivering that which was asked of you and a little bit extra. Every time you complete a assi- an assignment successfully and certainly above people's expectations, you generate the performance currency. And as I like to say early on, Don, it's worth about a buck fifty. And performance currency is valuable for three reasons. Number one, early in your career and early on in any environment, it will get you noticed. It will create a reputation for you. Number two, it may even get you paid or promoted early on in any environment. And number three, it also will attract a sponsor for you. And as you know, a sponsor is the most important relationship that you can have in your career. The issue with performance currency, however, 
is over time, it experiences diminishing marginal returns. That buck fifty starts to work its way right back down to a dollar. Why? Because now you have created a new standard of excellence. Everyone knows that you will do a great job. Everyone expects that you will deliver. So there's no longer a premium associated with your deliverable. The currency that's now most important is the relationship currency. And relationship currency is the currency that is generated by the investments that you make in the people in your environment. And it's worth, frankly, about 225, as I like to say, and it never experiences any diminishing marginal returns. And it's most important because your ability to move in any environment is going to be a function of somebody's judgment, judgment about whether or not you're ready, judgment about whether or not the team will follow you, and judgment about whether or not you will ultimately be successful. And judgments are directly influenced by relationships. And the last piece of evidence that I'll give you is everybody has power hard-earned personal influential currency. But almost no one will use their hard-earned personal influential currency on somebody they do not know. So while your performance currency may get your name on a short list that's being discussed behind closed doors for a promotion, for a new opportunity, for a great bonus, when your name is called behind closed doors, if no one in that room can speak on your behalf, they simply go to the next name on the list, and it has nothing to do with your ability to do the job. You may be a great candidate, but if somebody doesn't know you well enough to speak up and spend some currency on your behalf, then you don't get that opportunity, which is why I argue that the relationship currency is far more valuable than the performance currency. No question you need the performance currency because it's one of the currencies that helps you to build the relationships or gives you access to a relationship. But it's the relationship currency that creates your mobility within an organization, and it's the relationship currency that will get you over the line for a critical decision. In that environment. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Career Talk on SiriusXM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are here with Carla Harris, who is Managing Director at Morgan Stanley. She is also a gospel recording artist with three albums and five sold-out performances at Carnegie Hall. So we're talking about our books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win. And Carla, you're giving us great advice from these books. And I want to dig into this currency piece because there's so many um, tentacles that kind of come out of this in terms of we talked about sponsorship. And, and I know in your book, you talk about the idea of perception and, and how that's impacting all of these decisions that are made at the table that you may not be in. So let's dig into this a little bit. And hey, if you've got a question for Carla Harris, you can give us a call all hour long, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you want to up your performance and relationship currencies, today's the day to call. If it's Thursday, noon Eastern time, we're live all hour, 844 844- Nine four two seven eight six six. So, you talked about performance currency, and and I would venture to say that if you want to get ahead in today's day and age, going above and beyond is is necessary. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say going above and beyond has always been table stakes. Done. It, it it's always been the thing that makes the difference and that can differentiate you in an environment. And as I said earlier, going above and beyond in your performance also gives you access to critical relationships that you can start to build. And how do you know, you you mentioned two things. So one, how do you know that you're going above and beyond? What are the signs and symbols that, that you will be getting from others? And then secondly, you talked about there's a point in your career where it's time to shift and move towards more relationship currency. How do you know when that time comes to shift because people just now expect it of you and, and they're not really paying attention to it as much anymore? Sure. So here's the first thing with respect to knowing that you've gone going above and beyond. The the way that you can strategize to always put yourself in a position where you are perceived as going above and beyond is that whenever you start an assignment, you should always take the time to find out what success looks like in that assignment. So whoever you're working with, you should ask them, what does success look like? What needs to happen in order for you to say that was an outstanding job? I want to understand what that looks like so that I know what I'm playing for and I know what I am trying to deliver for you. Now, here's the trick, though. Sometimes when you ask people that question, they will not be able to respond 
But remember, everybody can react. So whenever you go to someone with that question, you should always have an idea in your own mind about what success looks like. So if the person answers you and says, well, you know, Don, I don't, I don't know, just, just do a good job. Say, you know, I understand that, Larry, but, uh, and I intend to do a great job, but here's what I'm thinking. I'd like to get your thoughts. If I do A, B, C, and D, will you think that's just outstanding relative to what you are expecting on this project? And if Larry couldn't answer your original question, he can now react. He can say, oh, I like A, I like B, I like C. Well, I don't really care about D. Now when you leave that five-minute, ten-minute conversation, you now have a blueprint of what success looks like, what Larry would consider to be outstanding. Now you know how to outperform that. So if he thought A, B, and C was great, then maybe you add D and maybe you think about an E so that when you deliver it, you can say, well, Larry, you wanted A, B, and C. Here it is. I've done A, B, and C. And oh, by the way, I've gone above and beyond and I've added D and E. I hope that's helpful too because now you're creating a perception in Larry's mind above and beyond. The next time you do something for Larry, you can use similar language again, but again, outperform his expectations. Then you know you've gone above and beyond. You don't have to guess. Matt, Carla, I, you're, I, you're my soulmate. I, I can't even. <laughs> that is such great advice. And I want to talk about, too, as you're talking about the the performance currency, I think that applies to getting feedback, too, because a lot of times when you ask for a feedback people don't know what to say to you or people are uncomfortable but I think one of the things about getting ahead is getting that feedback along the way critical constructive to make sure that you are performing the best that you can be but a lot of times you ask and people will say I don't know looks good to me yes and and here's the thing when you looking for feedback I I absolutely don't employ the same strategy because sometimes people don't know how to give you feedback. They are afraid to give you feedback. Um, they really haven't even thought about you, so they have no feedback. So once again, you should make it easy for them to react. Again, have a perspective on the job that you think you've done, and the conversation goes like this. Don, I really had a great time working with you on this project, and I'd love to get some feedback from you as to around what you think I could do better or you know what I should really focus on. I think that I did A, B, and C really well, but I wonder what you think about D or E. That's one way that you can solicit the feedback from them if they can't give you a sense of what you did because there is always an opportunity to improve. So you should always look for where there are gaps, especially early on in your career when you're new in an environment, you're still trying to understand the culture, and you're still trying to find out what are the different definitions of success that exist in that culture. You definitely want to pressure test your first two or three assignments so you can get a feel for the kind of feedback that people will give you and you get a more informed view of how they embrace success in that environment. You're listening to Career Talk, Sirius XM Channel 111, 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. And we're going to go to Mike in Washington. Mike, welcome to Career Talk. What's on your mind today? Hey, thank you, and good afternoon. I just want to ask a question. I like the uh, relational or relationship currency. I wanted to find out if you're not really, let's say, a social butterfly or part of the quote-unquote good old boys club, what's the recommendation that you have for developing that relationship currency? It seems like a lot of people that participate in the social aspect of, of the relationships, uh, they, they seem to get into that network that helps them advance. Yes. There are two ways to develop the relationships. One, as you point out, Mike, is outside of the office, where it sounds like people, from your question, it sounds like people may be uh, playing golf together or they may go for after-work drinks or um, they may do other things outside the office that you may or may not have the opportunity to do based on your own time and your own schedule. Then the way that you can work at those relationships is just stop by people's office. I'm a big fan of what I call, you know, relationship management by walking around. So you stop by somebody's office, hey, on a Monday, let's say, hey, how's the weekend? 
what you guys do, and here's what we did for the weekend. Again, that's a two- to three-minute exchange, but it is an exchange that counts. Or you walk in by somebody's office and say, hey, you know, it's 2 o'clock. My energy level is low. I'm getting a, getting a coffee. Can I grab you one? How you like it? That's another touch. The way you build these relationships, as I like to say it, is just frequency of touch. If you think about who's close to you in your personal life, Mike, you probably got close to that person because you ended up spending a lot of time with them. Those are touch points. So create opportunities for frequency of touch in your environment, inside the office, and that's how you can start to build those relationships. Now, if you do have the opportunity to spend time outside the office, you know the whole department goes for drinks on Thursday night, or you know that you know certain people go out to the movies together, they get together for drinks, and, and you have the opportunity to do that, then even if they don't invite you, say, hey, I hear you guys are going for drinks. Hey, I'm going too. Where are you guys getting? I'm going to buy the first round. You know, And nobody's ever going to disinvite you, so don't sit around and just wait to be invited. If you know a whole group is going, invite yourself and start to be a part of the fabric. And, I hope that helps. Yeah, Carla, I, I love that advice. I'm going to build on that, Mike, because I'm also probably not what you'd call a social butterfly. I'm perfectly happy sitting in my office, just working away, knocking things off my calendar and eating lunch at my desk. So I, I understand that. And, and a couple other ways you might do that would be to if there's, you know, if they celebrate office birthday parties or there's things in the office where everybody sort of gets together in the conference room to celebrate, you know, stop in for 15 minutes. Make sure you're there. Just show up. These are really easy ways to kind of get in the mix. Something else that we've talked about on the show, I think it's been one of our previous quizzes, is put a candy dish on your desk. This encourages, or if, you know, if or anywhere, kind of in your space, this encourages people to come in and grab a Snickers or whatever it is and just chat. And it could be three seconds. And hey, again, it's all about building that relationship currency. So if it's not normal uh, behavior for you, just pick a couple of things throughout the day, as Carla mentioned, that and start doing them because I think every touch point counts, as she mentioned. 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. Thanks for giving us a call on Career Talk, Mike. And we're taking your calls all hour. If it's noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are here with Carla Harris, who's managing director at Morgan Stanley. We've been talking about performance currency and relationship currency. And one of the things that, that this kind of leads to that you were mentioning, Carla, is the idea of sponsorship. And you really divide sponsorship from, from an advisor, from a mentor, and kind of look at these relationships differently. Can you speak for a few uh, minutes about how you see these differently? Absolutely. And frankly, the reason I wrote about that, Don, is I had been talking about it since 1990, the word sponsorship. And now I'm so pleased to see people writing books about it, using the word liberally, because it is indeed a critical relationship. An advisor, in my parlance, is anybody in your environment that can answer any discreet question you have. Oh, Mike, I'm going to be working with Don. Can you introduce me to her? I'd like to get to know her before we start this project. Oh, oh Mary, can you walk me through the weighted average cost of capital. I think you all do it differently than I did it in my own firm. Those are examples of discrete questions. And again, anybody in your environment that has the experience or the intellect to answer it, you can call that person an advisor. A mentor, on the other hand, is the person that you can tell the good, the bad, and the ugly to. So by definition, it must be somebody that you trust, and it must be somebody that knows you very well. Don't just choose someone and say, oh, Don has been in this business now for five years. She's successful. She's going to be my mentor. Because if she doesn't know you very well, she cannot be a great mentor to you because in in my definition a mentor is the person that will give you tailored advice tailored specifically to you and to your career aspirations so if I know Don and I know Michelle and they both want to become senior vice presidents and I'm a good mentor I will give them two different strategies because they are two different women and my job is to give them tailored advice that they can successfully execute your mentor does not need to be within your organization, nor do they need to look like you, but they must understand the context that you're working in in order to give you tailored advice that you can successfully execute. Now, the truth of the matter is you can survive a long time in your career without a mentor, but you will not ascend in any organization without a sponsor. The sponsor is the most important of the three relationships. The sponsor is the person that is carrying your paper into the room. This is the person that behind closed doors will argue passionately on your behalf 
as to why you should get the great bonus, why you should get the next great opportunity, why you should get the promotion. This is the person that is spending their valuable political and social capital on you. So I want to dig into each of these a little bit deeper when we come back from the break, because I think a lot of people ask, they reach out to me and to others saying, how do I get a mentor? How do I get a sponsor? As if it's something that you can just sign up for. And I think there are strategies, although they're they're probably not as, as one step as people would like. So I definitely want to come back and talk about how you can build relationships with each of these three types of individuals in your life when we get back from the break. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are here with Carla Harris, who's Managing Director at Morgan Stanley, talking about all of the great wisdom and advice she puts forth in her two books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win. So if you've got a question We'd love to hear from you, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. But right now, we're going to go to our pre-break quiz. Quiz. There's a quiz? Okay. So brains aren't the only thing you'll need to graduate from this prestigious institution. Since the 1940s, MIT has required all students to pass this type of test. Think you know? 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So since the 1940s, in addition to all of the coursework, MIT has required all students pass this type of test before officially graduating. You're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Career Talk on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Dr. Don Brand. Welcome back to Career Talk, your career insider. We are on Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Hey, for more great advice, you can follow my blog, dawnoncareers.com, or follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Don Graham. We are here today with Carla Harris, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley. She has two awesome books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, which can help you catapult your career and be successful. And we're talking all about that great advice today on Career Talk. So, Carla, right before the break, we were talking about about the difference between advisor, mentor, and a sponsor. And one of the things we often hear is, how can I get a mentor? How do I get a sponsor so that I can make sure I'm being represented in the room when they're talking about promotions? So what, what is your advice to people who ask that question? Absolutely. Let's talk with a mentor. As I said earlier, Don, a mentor does not need to be within your organization, nor do they need to look like you. So when you're thinking about who could be a great mentor, think about people who are already in your life that know you very well um, and that have already or that you believe will give you no-nonsense, straight, no-chaser feedback when you ask for it. So they won't spend time trying to pretty it up. They won't beat around the bush. They won't, you know, take extraordinary measures not to hurt your feelings and therefore not give you the real content. So think about people like that in your life. And now your your next screen will be, okay, if I can come up with five names, who also understands my context, who understands my business, or who's close enough to my business, or who's in a similar business that they may understand the culture, or they may understand the key success factors. And then you can narrow down on who you might want to use as a mentor. And the number one criteria in my mind is who will give it to me straight, no chaser, and that I know that they have my best interest at heart. There's no doubt in my mind that when I'm speaking to that person, there's one agenda item, and that's me, right? And once you have figured who that out, that who that person is or those persons are, it might be two, you will continue to invest and develop those relationships and use them as a real mentor, telling them the good, the bad, the ugly, your fears, your concerns, your triumphs, your mistakes, and also helping and using them to help develop your strategies. Now, a sponsor, on the other hand, is not, as I say, the person that you would tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. As I like to joke, that's the person that you want focused on the good, the good, and the good. (laughs) And you do not want to share with this person your fears, your concerns, all of your mistakes, because you don't want this person compromised behind closed doors. So let's say that 
you know, there's a big assignment coming up to work with Mary. But I know Don is, you know, intimidated by Mary and she's afraid of Mary. Well, if I'm a mentor, I can talk to her about that. I can talk her through that. But if I'm a sponsor and I have to put my capital on the line to argue that Don should be working with Mary, but yet I now know that Don is very intimidated and she may be afraid of Mary, now I'm thinking to myself, uh, should I really push for her? I know she's intimidated. She might not do a good job. This might derail her. So you really don't want to pollute your sponsor with the bad and the ugly. You really want to make sure your sponsor is focused on, wow, Donna's done a great job. She is not to cover off the ball on the last three assignments. You know, she's very assertive. She works well with people. I'm going to pound the table and say she ought to have that assignment. So now, what's the profile of the person? How do you find a sponsor? Pick somebody in your environment. As I've said, the mentor does not need to be within the environment. The sponsor must be within your environment. So choose, number one, someone who has exposure to your work. Because as I always like to say, the sponsor has to have some credibility behind closed doors. So if they're not working directly with you or they don't have exposure to your work, when they start to pound the table, other folks around the table are trying to figure out, well, where is that coming from? Because you don't know this person. You have no evidence of how good they are. So the sponsor needs to have exposure to your work. They don't, you don't have to work for them, but they need to have exposure to your work, number one. Number two, they do have to have a seat at the decision-making table. And number three, they need to have the juice to get it done for you. So in thinking about who could be your sponsor, I like to tell people to study your environment for a couple of weeks and look at who has direct exposure to your work, who has a respected voice in the organization, who also has a seat at the table, and who's going to be accessible enough for you to start to build that relationship with. And that's how you find a sponsor. Ideally, you pick two or three people that you can start to invest in with respect to building a relationship, and one or for sure will rise to the top as the most probable candidate, and you over-invest in that relationship relative to the other two. And, and Carla, you talk a lot about networking, and, and this goes back to what we were talking about before with relationship currency. Of course, on a career show, we talk a lot about networking, not just to get ahead in your career, as you're talking about, but obviously to get jobs and to have opportunities brought to you. But you bring up one important aspect that I that you said earlier that I want to highlight is that when you're asking somebody to help you network or to even be a sponsor or mentor, they're putting their currency on the line for you. And that's an important thing to recognize as somebody who's asking for that help. So when you're talking about individuals networking, especially for a job search or, or for uh, you know maybe getting a promotion or things like that, what are some important things for people who are asking others to help them to remember? Yes. First of all, don't be overly preoccupied with what you can do back for that person. Because so often, Don, I have people say to me, oh, I would love someone to be my, my sponsor, but I don't know what I can do for that person. What can I offer, especially if that person is junior? Never underestimate that you have gifts and wisdom and connections that you could bring to the table. If not now in that relationship, you will be able to do it later. So don't let that become an obstacle with respect to approaching that person. The other thing is to think about if the person is really senior, uh, then again, don't preoccupy yourself with making small talk or uh, trying to get that familiar. You know, that person would really appreciate if you come to the table with an agenda. So if you, when people walk into my office and say, uh, you know, Carla, I wanted to spend some time with you, and over time I hope to get to know you, but I do have three questions that I really need your help on right now, and, and they just lay them out. I so appreciate it, and they end up getting even more of my time as opposed to someone who comes in and says, well, just wanted to get to know you or, you know, heard you had a daughter. How's your little girl? Or, you know, what do you like to do on the weekends? In in a work environment, generally senior people don't have that kind of time. Mm -hmm. And if they choose to make that kind of time for you, that's great. But frankly, you don't care. You really want to have access to their ability to help you. Uh, and, oh, and on the journey, you'll get to know them. And then the third thing to keep in mind, and, and this is what I always say to people, and is my number one criteria for people that I mentor and my criteria for people that I will sponsor, is 
are you willing to do that for someone else? So I generally, Don, will lend my weight, my power, um, you know, my my perspective to those who I think will do it for someone else. So you have to remember that if someone is willing to spend that currency on you, you have to be willing to spend your currency on someone else. Even during those times when you may not feel that powerful, you still have power and the ability to be able to extend that to someone else. Yes, we're talking to Carla Harris, who is the managing director at Morgan Stanley, and we are talking about the great advice she puts forward in her books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, all hour long here on Career Talk, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, Sirius XM, Channel 111. And we're going to come back to that topic in just a moment, but first we're going to answer our pre-break quiz. So brains aren't the only thing you'll need to graduate from this prestigious institution since the 1940s. MIT has been requiring all students to pass this test. Michael in Massachusetts, you're up. Hi. Hi. Yes, so they have to pass a swimming test. They have swimming to swimming test. That seems so odd. That, but that is right. <laughs> of course it's right. I, I, yeah, Dion's going to claim that that was his answer because it I went to you first. <laughs> See? But come on, Dion. <laughs> I, I, as soon as I saw it, I, I knew you. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to believe me, <laughs> and I should have told you in the break. I asked you in the break. You had an opportunity, Michael. Did you have to pass a swimming test? Did you go to MIT? I, I did not. I do live in the area, but my understanding is that in the '40s there was a student who did drown, and the father was a, um, a donor to the school and uh, made the school um, have this rule. And he gave a large donation, is my understanding of the history behind it. So, yeah, and apparently MIT is not the only school. Cornell, um, Columbia, Hamilton College, there's a few of them that actually require this test. And for those of you who are going to these schools, you should know it's a 100-yard swim, but there's no time requirement. You just need to do it before you graduate. And there have been a lot of seniors, apparently, who are getting ready to go get their cap and gown, who are like, get in the pool. you got to do this. So, Michael, kudos to you. Dion, we're going to give it to you as well. I knew, I knew you had that one. You were pretty confident on that one. So, I yep, was. Swimming test. So we're here with Carla Harris, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley, taking your calls all hour long, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, Carla, one of the things you talk about in your book is taking risks and speaking up. And this is something that's very difficult for people. You even just spoke about it as you're talking about networking and networking with, with maybe higher-ups in the company. I mean, it, it could be very intimidating for somebody to walk into an executive's office and say, I have three things on my agenda. I know we have 15 minutes. Let's go. What is your advice for people who are, are kind of struggling with that part of taking risks and speaking up? Yes. Well, first of all, the strategy would be think about where you want to you know, start to develop and practice, if you will. Do you want to do it in a one-on-one setting with people, or do you want to do it in a presentation setting? Because that would that will dictate the strategy. So if you want to do it on a one-on-one, uh, the way I like to think about it is, first of all, remember that that person is human just like you. Uh, they have fears. They have concerns. They have trepidation uh, in, in terms of going to someone for the first time. Uh, so understand that you do have something in common. Now do some homework. Find out what it is you need to know about that person. Like you've done your homework on me. The first thing you said, she's a banker, but she's also a singer. She's done five sold-out concerts at Carnegie Hall. Well, if you know that about the person, then you can start the conversation and say, hey, I know you've been in this business for a long time, and you're a great banker, but I understand you're a singer as well. You know, how do you do that? Or what kind of music do you like to sing? Or when do you practice? How do you hone your craft? Once you've done your homework, you can develop two or three questions that you might want to ask that person. I also tell people, always be ready with the answer to the question, what are you working on? Because you don't know who is going to join you in the elevator on what floor. And you don't want to find yourself in the elevator and you in the elevator with the chairman, someone you always wanted to speak to, and you can't answer the question, what are you working on or where do you work or how long have you been here, those kinds of questions. So just when you're walking along the street, you're in the subway, you're in your car, practice your quick elevator pitch if, and play the what-if game. That's what I used to, day, used to do. So what if the chairman walks in and he says, what are you working on, Carla? What are you going to say? How are you going to say it? What if the president walks in the elevator and said, hey, how do you like it here? I, I, I saw you did X. Uh, how long have you been here? How do you like it? Or who are you working with? How do you like it? 
have those answers ready. And the more you practice them, the more the easier it'll be, uh, and the more likely you will be uh, able to answer the question. Uh, affirmatively and confidently. So practice a little bit and then find those times to intersect with people. I love that advice too, because thinking about each morning, like what am I working on? What's my priority? Also helps you get ready for it. Not only those impromptu conversations with people, maybe executives in the elevator, but I say every interaction you have, instead of just going through the standard, how are you? I'm good. How's your busy? You know, just you have an opportunity with everybody you meet, everybody you come across during the day to, to build you know, your power to build your brand and you should be taking those opportunities even if it's just in passing. So, That's right. So I love that advice. One, one other thing that really jumped out to me as I was reading your books is this idea of perception is the co-pilot to reality. Yes. And, and this is such an interesting concept to me because I hadn't really thought about it in the way you present it. So can you share what that means with our listeners? Absolutely. The way people perceive you will directly impact how they deal with you. So if you want to train people to think about you in a certain way, and generally you would want them to think about you in the same context that they think about successful people in their environment, then your behavior should be consistent with that. So, for example, Don, if you are in a role, let's say a first-year associate in an investment bank, and you know that what's valued in that role is your analytical skills, your quantitative skills, your attention to detail, then when you're talking about yourself and your environment, you should say things like, well, you know I'm really analytical, so what do the numbers tell us in this in this case? Or there are four reasons that I think this, three reasons that I think that. Um, and you can speak in a way that people can tell that you are analytical, that you're quantitative, that you're all about the numbers. Because at the end of the day, when folks don't know you, the perception of you will dominate how they are dealing with you. So if they think that you are unapproachable, if they think that you are not a team player, if they think that uh, you are standoffish, then they're, what are they going to do? They're not likely to work with you. They won't pick you to work on their teams. They'll start to create a narrative and say that you're difficult, that you're not a team player, when in fact, They've had no interaction with you at all. So that's why it's important that you recognize the power of your behavior and the power of that behavior to create a perception that will then become the reality of how people will interact with you. And I think a lot of people feel like this is, oh, that's not fair. That's, that's, you know, very unfair. But as we were speaking about before, those sponsors are who are in the room making decisions when you're not there. I mean, I think, I think you quoted this at one of your talks or conferences recently about the fact that most of the career decisions about you happen when you're not in the room. Absolutely. And so and that's that, why the perception is so important. Exactly. Right. So how do you find out how you're perceived? Because it, oftentimes people might not tell you to yes. your face. So how can you find out? Are people talking about you positively in the room when you're not there? Well, I'll tell you, and I talk about this very explicitly and expect to win. If you are not sure of the perception that exists about you in the marketplace, then my recommendation is to go to two people that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are on your success team and go to two people that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt are not on your success team and you ask all four people the same question and the question is you know listen I am trying to take my game a little higher in this environment and I really would like to get your thoughts on what you think I do really well and where you think I could improve here's what I think I'm doing well and maybe you agree or you don't agree I'd love to hear your thoughts but I'm not quite sure of the other things that I should be doing how do you see it and don't debate all four will give you an answer don't go back and forth. You just listen and receive. And remember that feedback is a gift. Good, bad, and ugly feedback is a gift because you can't fix it if you don't know that it's broken. So you always want to create a safe place where somebody will give you the real deal feedback. Once you have those four data points done, then you sit back and you reflect on what you've heard and really ask yourself the questions of whether or not those things are true or whether or not you could be uh, actually displaying those things unknowingly and certainly not meaning to, but yet that's the behavior that, that you're putting out there. And how can you correct that? Or maybe you learned some things that you, had, you weren't not aware of at all. But to get that feedback, that'll get, those four data points will give you a pretty good sense of what the marketplace is saying about you. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to SiriusXM Channel 111. This is Career Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are here with Carla Harris, who is the author of Expect to Win and Strategize to Win. She has coached hundreds of people on their careers during her 30 years at Morgan Stanley, and she's taking questions from you right now, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If it's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are live on Career Talk. So I'm hearing a theme, Carla, that it's all about preparing, knowing your audience, preparing. So if you're speaking to an executive, prepare your, your agenda. If you're speaking to or if you're trying to pick a sponsor or mentor or somebody in that realm, it's really about preparing, preparing and doing your research and your homework. And this this takes time and it's a step that a lot of people skip. How can you make time for it? And, and is it really as labor intensive as people imagine it to be? Yeah, and thank you so much for that question, Don, because, in fact, it does not take a lot of time. And that's why I said earlier, when you are in your car, when you're on the subway, when you're on the bus, when you're walking down the street, these are things that can go through your mind. I mean, if you think about it, what are you thinking about now when you're in your car? What are you thinking about when you're walking down the street or on the subway? Those are times when you can think to yourself, boy, if I got asked this question, how would I answer it? What do I like about my job? What would I improve? What's the job that I really want to have? When it only takes a few minutes to think about those kinds of things. If I had 10 minutes with Carla Harris, what would I ask her? You know, if I bumped into her uh, in the in the elevator, you know, what's the one question I might ask her? That doesn't take any time at all. So it's not like you need to set aside an hour or two hours in the week to prepare all the things that we're talking about. These are things that you can do easily as you're, again, walking down the street, heading over to lunch, uh, and just spending just a few minutes with yourself. But it does call for you to be somewhat self-reflective and to be self-aware. And I think that is something that we don't often talk about in these kinds of conversations because I find that so many people miss the opportunity to move ahead in their organizations because they're, they've never thought about what is the job I really want. They are waiting for someone to come to them and offer them an opportunity and then are frustrated that they never get that tap on the shoulder. As I like to tell people, do not wait for the opportunity to come to you. Think affirmatively about what you would like to do next because you may not know it, but someone is looking at you, seeing that you're doing a good job, and will approach you seemingly out of the blue and say, hey, Don, what would you like to do next? And you never want to be caught unprepared with that question. And that's exactly how it happens. I love that advice because I think what our listeners are taking away is that it's it's not time intensive to be prepared for when that happens. And if you're doing all these steps, chances are somebody is going to walk up to you and say, hey, I'm about to go to a meeting. We're going to be making some decisions. What do you want to do? That's right. And, and you're going to have 30 seconds. You're not going to have a second chance. So spending right. that time preparing now is going to be helpful. Hey, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-786. Six, we're here with Carla Harris. I want to switch to the job interview and kind of the hiring process for our last few minutes. So as somebody who's hired a lot of people and who's in that position to evaluate candidates, what is it you're looking for? Obviously, in addition to having a, an aligned background skills-wise, skills what is it you're looking for in a candidate to hire? Yes. yes. When I'm hiring someone for an investment banking position, for example, in addition to their analytical and their quantitative skills and aptitude, I'm also looking for whether or not they are a great relationship person. I'm looking for whether or not they are tenacious, uh, whether or not they have persevered um, and, and really worked through challenging situations or challenging times, because I know away from the actual work of doing a spreadsheet, there are also dynamics that call for you to be tenacious and for you to persevere and for you to be a good relationship person and a good connector. So it all depends on the job, Don. And one of the things that I say in Strategize to Win, that the key to a successful interview, if you are the interviewee, is to understand what the buyer is really buying. What are the key success factors for that role? And you should tell your story through that lens. So if I were interviewing for a radio job, for example. Well, what are the key success factors? Somebody who's very articulate, somebody who can connect with people over the phone, who can build relationships, can have an easy rapport, someone who can do research and do research really quickly and pick up and listen really well. Well, if I'm interviewing for that job, when I tell the Carla Harris story, I'm going to tell it through that lens, using those adjectives and using those descriptors. And that's how you connect with the interviewer. So as the interviewer, 
I'm thinking about those things when I am interviewing the person. I know what the key success factors are. So I'm looking and listening uh, to their stories and looking at their behavior and their person to see whether or not it's consistent with those key success factors. So what about people who get very nervous in the interview? So maybe they've they've got a lot of the qualities you've just mentioned, but when that, that kind of performance clock ticks on, it's hard for them to show it. Yes. Now, if I have a candidate in front of me that I see all of a sudden is really, really nervous, but yet I know that they have the the capabilities of doing the job, then I will go out of my way to try to make them feel comfortable. But that's who I am as an interviewer. You're not always going to have that kind of person sitting in front of you if you're interviewing. So the thing that I tell candidates is remember when you are interviewing, you always have the upper hand in the interview. Why? Because the person sitting in front of you, interviewing you, they're the ones that have a job to do that day. Their job is to find a really good person to join their organization. You simply have the job of making them feel like they will make a mistake if they don't choose you. And you know yourself better than they do. They've only had a few minutes to study your resume. You've had a lifetime of creating those accomplishments. You have the upper hand. Tell your story with confidence. So, and I think too, having a lot of uh, eggs in the basket is helpful. If this is your only one or you're putting you know, all of your stakes into this, of course, it's going to make you, you know, more unsure of yourself. So, so definitely having more opportunities to interview or more opportunities coming up later that week can re- be really helpful. And I, I love what you're saying because I do agree that not everybody's a great interviewer. And a lot of people don't do interviewing for a living. They have a line job, and so you come in, and I think you as the candidate, this is where that preparation comes in, you need to be prepared with what you're going to leave on the table. Mm-hmm. You can't count on them to ask you the questions you want them to ask you. Oh, that's correct. You're absolutely right, Don, because there are lots of people that cannot interview. And I certainly, when I had my undergraduate career and my um, MBA career, I met a lot of interviewers who, frankly, could not interview. They were not prepared. They had not looked at the resume beforehand. They were trying to listen to me and read the resume at the same time. That is not a good interviewer. And they could not even keep the conversation going. So one of the things that I learned very early on as an undergraduate is that you have to be prepared to take control of the interview. And you want to make sure that you leave that interview with the message about yourself. Ask yourself the question, If they remember nothing else about me, what is the one thing I want to make sure that they remember about me? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself that question before you go in, and you make sure you deliver that. So, Carla, as we wrap up in our our last minute, you've had such a successful career, and you've talked a lot today about how you've attained that and some of your your, what you apply to your day-to-day to do that. So as we look to students who are going to be graduating or recently graduated and are looking ahead at their career, what's one piece of advice you can give to them or leave with them on this show? Yes, I would say that as you go into your environments and you focus on what's the key performance currency that you need to generate, you must also start to build those relationships and use the people that interviewed you and gave you the offer, brought you into that organization, use them as your initial connector to other uh, other people within the organization that you might want to build relationships with. They can be very valuable to you. Don't leave them behind now that you have the offer and now that you're about to start. Mm-hmm. So that relationship currency. So, Carla, thank you so much for taking time to talk to our listeners today on Career Talk. Is there a place where people can follow you to learn more? Absolutely. You can follow me at, at Carla Ann Harris uh, on Twitter and Facebook, as well as www.carlaspearls.com. Thank you so much, Carla Harris, who's Managing Director at Morgan Stanley. Definitely go out and get her books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, full of great tips. We so appreciate your time, Carla. Michelle and Dion, thank you for running this ship. And to all of our listeners and callers, we're here each week on Career Talk Series XM Channel 111 for you. So we will see you next time.